This is Kelly Carlin, and welcome to Waking from the American Dream. takes a cigarette puts it in your mouth you pull on your finger then another finger then cigarette the water wall is calling it lingers then you forget oh 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 you're a rock and roll suicide Too old to lose it Too young to choose it And the clock waits so patiently on your song You walk past the cafe But you don't eat when you've lived too long Oh no, no, no You're a rock and roll suicide It breaks the snarling as you stumble across the road. But the day breaks instead, so you hurry home. Don't let the sun blast your shadow. Don't let the milk float rob your mind. They're so natural, religiously unkind. Oh no! Okay, I'm lucky if I can even speak after that. (laughs) Fuck, why did I play that song? Hi, everyone. It's Kelly here, and we're back. It's January 12th, 2016, and uh, I am determined to do my podcast again. And why did I play that song? Well, because two nights ago, David Bowie died. Oh, I can barely talk about it still. I don't even know why. It's not like I walk around thinking about David Bowie all the time. It's the weirdest thing. I, he just fucking represents, you know what it is? And that song completely holds the space too. He really knows how to express the melancholy of being a human at the same time, the exultation of being a human. 
So, you know, here's a guy who knows how to live in all pockets of life. And I think that's what he brought to everybody. I know that's what he brought to me. And I, I posted on Facebook about his death. I was posting a lot on Twitter. I was on Twitter. I went on the New York Times Twitter feed to look up something else, some article I had just read, and boom, there it was, David Bowie dies. And they had just put it up like two minutes earlier. And I was like, what the fuck? Um, so I spent a lot of time on Twitter um, Sunday night, I guess it was, with a lot of people who were kind of experiencing this together. And, you know, and this is the great thing about social media is you're in a room with a bunch of people. You're having a collective experience um, inside the, <laughs> the the lonely space of the night. Um, but yeah, Bowie just had a way of, yeah, he just, you know, I, I first heard him with the Changes One album. I was in high school. I was 15, 14, 15 years old. Um, and I, you know, and, and some of those songs played on the radio and stuff like that. And my mom took me to see him at the form for the 19, I think it was 78, um, a concert where he changed clothes, I think at least three to five times. I mean, we're talking fabulous fucking outfits. And I found a picture from that, from that show actually the other day. It was great. Um, but, uh, yeah, just, uh, he's just hit me and I'm already in this big grief space anyway, which we'll talk about in a minute. So it's like any chance my psyche has to visit it. <laughs> And, uh, and, and have an experience of grief, or just a chance to release a little bit of it. Um, I seem to be taking full advantage of that lately, uh, which uh, it feels like about time. So where the hell have I been? Well, if you follow me online, you know where I've been. I've uh, been doing this book thing, uh, which has been amazing. Uh, my book came out September 15th, and I got to go to New York and do 10 days of a whirlwind press tour in New York City and got to be on some TV and lots of radio and lots of newspaper stuff and a couple of cool events, uh, one of which is uh, the House of Speakeasies uh, event, uh, which was just fantastic down at City Winery, where I wrote a new piece called Altered States, which I'm doing this weekend on another book event, which I'll talk about in a minute. Uh, so yeah, so I've been in this, well, first of all, I haven't been doing my podcast at all all year just because I've, I don't know, I'm just, I guess I've been finding what, what is this space about? What do I want to do? Um, I'm just, like, I'm not always in transition. I'm in transition again. We're always in transition. I think waking up in the morning means we're in transition. <laughs> we're transitioning from sleep to wake. Uh, you know, we have this false sense that we're actually somewhere. Like, oh, I'm here now. This is what it is. Okay, now I'm here. Now I just get to like relax for a few minutes and, and be here. And um, it's, it's not true. It's that's just our kind of our minds trying to wrap around the moment um, so that I guess we don't feel like we're living in complete and total utter chaos. Uh, but I, I think we are. I think we are because everything is always shifting in every moment. If it wasn't, our bodies couldn't be alive because our bodies are having to shift every single moment. Blood, air, oxygen, 
potassium, sodium, move this shit around, keep this body going. So uh, this uh, body that looks so much like it's a solid thing. Mm, yeah, not either. So once again, of course, I'm in transition, like a huge transition. Um, and so like with the podcast, I think what happened was, you know, I really started this podcast a few years ago, uh, the fall of God, like, I think it's four years. I really do. I'd have to look, it could be five. I don't even know anymore. Um, because I wanted to dare be out in the world in some way and try to find out who I was by talking into a microphone and talking to other people and inviting people into my space to um, have conversations with me, mostly about waking from the American dream, which, you know, if you're a first time listener, sounds like a very specific topic, but um, it's pretty much uh, the biggest topic in the world, which is how to wake up from the status quo. So which once again, is something we're doing in every moment. You know, that's going to be the theme of the show. So the podcast, you know, originally started with that me wanting to, quote, find my voice, end quote, um, which I think maybe my new purpose in life is going to be to find a new phrase for that phrase. <laughs> because it's so overused. And it's just, uh, it's such an empty phrase, because what the fuck does that mean? I mean, we all know what it means, but you know. So then the then I started writing this book, which was uh, a huge act of <laughs> expressing my voice, expressing my, my story, expressing the story that has been locked inside of me for, um, for sure 15 years. Um, and so I don't think I really needed the podcast for that anymore. And so I didn't know what I needed the podcast for. And I know that like people are just supposed to do things because you're supposed to do them like, oh, you have a podcast, you need to keep doing that. Um, but uh, I'm not good with that, that should thing. I, I mean, I'm glad I'm not good with it, because I've learned to not be good with it. Um, I've learned if I if one thing my father has finally taught me, <laughs> although my dad lived by shoulds, his to do lists were just insane. Uh, the inner should in his head, I would not want to be introduced to. But uh, he did teach me in some ways about the anti should list. So yeah, so I'm claiming that for myself. Um, my mom had a big should list too. Now that I think about it. That's where we learn these things from. Uh, so I don't, I didn't know what I wanted my podcast to be about. And I didn't just want to keep doing it because it was what I was supposed to be doing. I wanted to give myself some space to figure out if it's something I even want to keep doing. And I wasn't sure last year, I really wasn't sure. So um, I'm more sure now. Uh, because I, I'm just going to start this new experiment, which is every once in a while, I'm going to have a guest. And every once in a while, we're going to have the octagon table. But mostly I'm going to just kind of talk in your ear for 45 minutes and we'll play some music and we'll play some other things and um, we'll, uh, you know, do the Fandango. I don't know. Is that a dance? It must be a dance. I'm guessing it is. <laughs> Please uh, Google it for me while you're listening. Uh, but not if you're driving. Don't Google if you're driving. All right. So, yeah. So I'm in transition. So welcome back to the podcast. I'm welcoming myself back as I am you too. And yeah, I just want to 
you know, talk about all sorts of things here. Uh, I'm somewhere in the back of my mind working on my next book. So a lot of these things I talk about are things that I'm probably going to put in that. And uh, I just, I'm in, I'm in musing. I'm amusing myself these days because I am musing a lot. And uh, it's, it's great. So here's the big deal for me is, and where the grief comes in. So this book is a 15 year dream for me, 15 years of dreaming it, of wanting to tell my story, my survivor story uh, to the world because I knew that I had made it out on the other side and wanted people to, I don't know, maybe be inspired by my story, maybe not feel so alone in the world. I think that's a big thing for me is, you know, all of us kind of huddling together and not feeling so alone. So it's done. It's out. It's out in the world. And it's January and it's been out for October, November, December, four months now, four months this weekend, Uh, 120 days, a third of a year it's been out. And it's still not hitting me. that it's out. It's starting to just creep in a little bit. But I'm not free of it. I'm not free of it yet. I don't have a big wide open space inside of me going, okay, what's next? Uh, Because I don't think life works that way. It's, it's like, you know, you just wake up one morning, I think, and you're like, oh, oh, I'm through that. I'm over that transition. So um, here I am. Parts parts of it, though, are real. And moving on, I can always tell when I'm ready to move on, when I get irritable. And I've been really irritable on Twitter lately. I have a lot of new Twitter followers and people on Facebook because of the book, which I'm very grateful for. Welcome to my feed, everyone. Uh, but I'm just, I'm tired of talking about my dad. I mean, here's the thing about the book tour. I talked about myself for two and a half months. I didn't think it was going to be that long, but starting in September, early, the beginning of September, all the way to the first week of December, I talked about myself or my father. And some interviews were better conducted than others. And, but all of them always in some way touched on my dad. Uh, and I love my dad, but I don't want to talk about him anymore. I I just, I think about Roseanne Cash right now, how about a year ago I approached her to do something. I don't even know what it was, <laughs> but it was something about, I wanted to talk about the transition from moving from, you know, being the daughter of to being your own person. And she and I know each other and have had some nice connection. And she said to me, I'm done, Kelly. I, I don't I don't really want to talk about my dad. I just, this album just came out. I had the most personal artistic success and feel like I'm so connected to my true artistic self in my life. And I, I just don't need to have that conversation anymore. And I said to her, oh, God, I just, you know, you are like this beacon for me ahead of the up ahead of the path. Um, I said, I can't wait to get there. So I'm, I'm hoping this year 
2016 is the year really where I do get there. Uh, which, you know, seems kind of difficult because the book will be coming out in paperback in the fall and there's a possible, and I say the word possible in italics, uh, tour of my show, uh, which could lead to Broadway. They tell me, I don't, I don't know. But if that happened, that would start in the fall and it would go through 2017. That means I would be telling the family story, you know, so it's like, but do you turn down an opportunity like that? You know. <laughs> so I will be learning this year, 2016, how to completely let go of this and not talk about my dad, while at the same time, knowing there are moments when I will be talking about my family. I will have to make those rules up in my own mind for myself. But um, if you're on Twitter with me, uh, don't send me a video of my dad doing co- stand-up comedy. I've I've seen them all. <laughs> I appreciate that you want to connect with me. And uh, the one easy connection is through my dad. But let's connect in a different way. Let's talk about something else. Uh, I would be happy to connect with you. you. If you see my Twitter feed, I connect with all sorts of people all day long. And uh, yes, And sometimes I do bring up my dad because he's right there in front of the conversation and maybe something's happening in the country and you can't help yourself, but, you know, think about it. But I'm going to resist that a bit as much as I can, which then leads me to the next part of this conversation, which is the grief. So, oh, so here's the other arc. So I'm finishing the 15-year book dream arc, which... Guys, I'm 52. I've never like put something in my mind that I have wanted to happen and then it f- it's fully manifested itself in an enormously successful, big, mainstream way before in my life. This is my first big like thing like that. I've done little things. I've done a ton of things in my life. I mean, I graduated from grad school and got a master's. I mean, that was a big thing. But there's something about this that was really important to my particular soul journey. Something about being seen and heard in the same arena as my father and my story being seen and heard in that arena. There's a lot of healing going on. So that's one big arc. And then the other big arc is this, basically, it'll be eight years this year, but it's been a seven-year arc of my dad's death. And seven years is a big number uh, in... I don't know. I don't know in, in what in what way, you know, in, in lots of different seven year cycles seems to be a big thing, like in your body every seven years, every single cell in your body has been replaced. Uh, there's there's something about that number that's just significant to me and felt really right for my book to be coming out seven years after my dad died. And um, so in these seven years, that I did not write about in the book at all um, has been a real adventure <laughs> for me on um, just it's I don't even I can't even begin to describe it and, and I know in some way my next book will will touch on these seven years because it's been just an incredible ride and it's I've learned so much about myself and the world through it but one thing that didn't really get to happen is a private 
experience of my personal grief about losing my father. Uh, right after he died, I was thrown into um, the maelstrom of it all. And within five months after his death, we were doing the Mark Twain Prize. And I, I just, I got on this bullet train um, immediately after his death and my life completely changed because of it. Uh, my life became a, I, be, I went from becoming a private person to a, a public person and not fully on my own terms. I mean, I was, I was George's daughter. That's who I was uh, to begin with. And so that's been, you know, interesting. And thus a lot of pressure on myself to be a certain way, to comport myself a certain way, to make my, <clears throat> to make my father proud, to do the right thing, to make his fans happy, um, to show up in the comedy world with, you know, humility. I mean, all these things came naturally to me, but at the same time also, um, you know, they put you in a bit of a pretzel shape and also did not get a chance to just, uh, felt like I didn't have a chance to completely fall apart or I didn't even have any space inside of me to fall apart. There was no time to fall apart. There was this bullet train I was on. We were just moving forward. And in order to fall apart, you kind of have to fall off the train and stand still. And now that the book is done, I've gotten to have this big wide space after talking about myself for two and a half months <laughs> to just be still and reconnect with myself and and fall apart a little bit. It's been really nice. I got to go up to Pacifica, my grad school, um, and go to a, an amazing event, a weekend focusing on this woman, Marion Woodman, who's a, a Jungian depth psychologist and studied addiction and eating disorders and all sorts of things, but she studied it through as we do in depth psychology, dreams and imagery and fantasy and movement and dance and painting, uh, very much what they call active imagination, what Jung called the active imagination, which is a way in engaging in your sight with your psyche uh, and your unconscious through these expressions, uh, the irrational expression of self. And a lot of what Marion Woodman does is through movement. And for me, movement in the body is something I've really... I've been focusing on and trying to get deeper connected to since I tend to live in my head so much. And uh, anyway, we, there's this exercise called the dance of three. And one person is the dancer, one person is the mirror, and one person is the person who just holds the space. And you each take a turn. And at this particular event, which is like most of these events, you kind of just roam around a room and they... They, and then they tell you to stop and look down and you look for some feet and you see two other pairs of feet and suddenly you're with two other people and you haven't even picked these people by their face. You've picked them by their feet and that the fact they're just close by and they're the feet that are near you. <clears throat> and you look up and there's these two humans there and you're like, oh, hello, we're going to do this amazing intimate thing in front of each other now. And by the way, there's 150 other people in the room with you, but we're all in our own space. And we have a live pianist playing uh, Chopin for us. Wow, so incredible. So um, the first woman 
dances and I'm the mirror and someone else is holding the space. And then I go second as the dancer. And, and in these things, it's completely in the moment. It's about completely not moving until you are compelled to move, that something within you moves you. And, and you never know. I mean, sometimes it's a dance of celebration. Sometimes it's, uh, you know, a, a dance of whimsy, of joy, of childlike, um, of consternation. I mean, who knows what's going to come out of you? I had no idea. And uh, so I started moving and it just, it just became so apparent that what was going to be happening was, is I was going to be uh, grieving. And I, I, my eyes were closed as I was doing this movement and I was being mirrored by one person who I couldn't see, but knowing that I was, the space was being held by this third person. And I let myself go into an incredible release of grief. And it was like grief that was bigger than me. It was, I mean, I know it was personal grief, but it also felt like every bit of grief I'd ever endured in my entire life. And I let out I mean, like wailing, I'm talking wailing, sobbing in public grief. And like, I felt I had it all out. And I was like, okay, that's done. Now where I'm going, where are we going now? And it was like, oh, we're going down again. And I boom, went down for another big release and got through that one and then went down a third time. And like, Right now, picture in your body, just feel your body and know that there's like, there's a tension there somewhere. There's a little something holding something together in your viscera, you know, like it's that body, there's, you're holding in something right now. Imagine that you got to let all of that go. Like there's not a single cell of your body that is, is, is clamping down and it it was incredible. It was absolutely <sighs> just so freeing. So I was like, wow, okay. So I guess that's happening this season. <laughs> I guess this autumn is about grief. And uh and it it has been. I've been I've been doing a, a bit of that uh releasing and finding myself uh just letting it go. Just that's the other thing about this Marion Woodman weekend. I like the permission that they set in this parameter of these exercises to like, just let your body be what it is and let your emotions just come up and express themselves in every moment. We are editing and censoring ourselves so much so that we can fit in with each other in front of our spouses, our friends, out in the world, even when we're sitting alone in our own homes, we don't allow ourselves to fully cry or fully laugh or uh, feel, uh, you know, uh, sex- our sexuality, the full range of our horniness or our hunger or our rage. You know, we, we've learned, you know, and rightly so, we live in a civilization to, 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 not let us be run by these things, but we're really good at not being run by these things. So, you know, after this Marion Woodman thing, it was like for about six weeks, I just, I felt so free to just 
be in whatever fucking space I was in emotionally and mood wise, and just saw how quickly it would transit through me then. Feel, you know, oh, feel the joy. Oh, the joy comes and the joy goes. Feel the rage. The rage comes and the rage goes. Feel the sadness. The sadness comes and it goes. Once again, you know, it's all temporary. It's all transitory. So yeah, it, it's, it's been a, it's been a great recircling back to myself after this book. And then I got to go to Esalen for seven days. Um, if you don't know what Esalen is, it's a place in Big Sur. Uh, it's opened about 50 years ago. It is the birthplace of the human potential movement. If you're a fan of Mad Men and was wondering where Don Draper was at the end when he was meditating on the cliffs, that was Esalen. They were, they were, they were nodding to that place, uh, you know, the, the big encounter groups that they used to do there. And, uh, of course, they're the people who, for the most part, are really responsible for bringing Eastern philosophy to the Western world, to the United States. Uh, so once again, I went to, I went to Esalen. I'd been there once before. I went with my dear friend and we did this really cool thing called Soul Collage. Once again, it's an active imagination uh, experience, but this is about collage work. And so it's about using image to help communicate to the depths of your unconscious and your psyche, your soul. And it's really profound. But the most profound part of the week was the naked co-ed natural spring baths that they have there. Uh, once again, we are so uptight about our bodies and... You know, this whole distinction between men and women and I can't pee in front of you and I have to put my clothes on and, you know, and we, we over then thus we over sexualize it all. And it was just so freeing. I mean, I don't do a lot of this, but I totally get this whole nudist camp thing now because it's like, okay, bodies come in every shape. My body's not in some sort of great perfect shape, but it's not horrible either. It's just a body and it's functioning and I've got boobs and I have pubic hair and I walk to the bath and we're naked and we sit in and I'm talking to strangers, women and men who are naked across from me in the bath. And, you know, you're standing in the dressing room naked, you're showering in a big co-ed shower naked and uh, really liberating. Like, I so get it. I so get it. And even there was like a bathroom there where like, it was a co-ed bathroom. Some guy's washing his hands and I like walk by and I go and pee. And I'm like peeing in front of a strange guy. Liberating. So liberating. It's like, if you ever gone camping and shit in the woods, it's that kind of liberating people. I highly recommend it. Shitting in the woods if you can't get to Esalen. Uh, so yeah. Freedom. Just, you know, finding freedom. Pondering freedom a lot. So what else did I want to talk about today? Uh, oh, yeah. So here's where the unfreedom part comes in. And I don't know about you guys, but it's January 12th. Uh, raise your hands if you're not ready for the fucking new year to start either. I mean, really? <laughs> can we can we just say January's like this? Like, we're, we're, it's just this getting going. Like, 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 let's not pretend it's all really starting and serious and official yet. Can't we just all just be like, yeah, we're easing in. Because dudes, January, February, this is winter. This is a time where 
our bodies, our psyches, nature all slows down. We're all, everything around us here in the Northern Hemisphere, the Southern Hemisphere is having a party right now, here in the Northern Hemisphere, we are just wanting to take a very long nap, like a three-month nap. And so I'm like sleeping in, I'm dreaming, my dreams are insane right now. And and waking up, I mean, all I can think about is this dreaded to-do list I have, like, oh, fuck. What is expected of me today? What in the real world where people are like, I don't know, grownups with real jobs and think that all this shit is important and real? <laughs> what do they want from me today? <sighs> Can't, can I just roll back over and just dream and then wake up and maybe doodle and muse a little bit? Uh, you know, or just kind of stare at the leaves, the rest of the leaves falling off the trees. Yeah, because I am not, I don't think anyone's ready for it to be the new year. It's ridiculous. So let's just all agree collectively to just, you know, when we see each other, just kind of wink and be like, yeah, they, I know we have a deadline. I know this is really serious, important life stuff. But we know it's not. Let's just, you know, whatever. <laughs> so, yeah. So I wake up with like the dread, the dreaded dread in the morning. It's a dreaded dread. It's so dreadful. And and I'm thinking, Kelly, A, what the fuck do you have to dread? I mean, you're like, you're, you've like had this 15-year dream come true and you're got things on your calendar and people want you to come out and fly in airplanes and do things in their city. And isn't that what you've always wanted? And what do you mean you're just wanting to roll over and go back to sleep and finish your dream? <clears throat> and, I, you know, and this has been, I think since I was, you know, went to preschool, it was always like, really, do I have to get up and go out and face the dreaded world. And so I was thinking about this this morning and I was like, you know, this is really not fun waking up with this sense of dreaded obligation. And it's something I've had a long time. And I was talking about it with my therapist last year too, you know, and about, and so I started thinking about it more in a psychological way and like really what's going on. And, and so I started thinking about, okay, so what's the dread about? So I'm projecting out into the world that there's some sort of expectation on me that people want me to be a certain way, show up and do something. And part of it is this thing about, oh, I need to be George Carlin's daughter, which I'm dreading now because it's like, I just want to be myself. And that's a part of me. But so there's that person I'm projecting on. And, and then it's like, you know, I'm also need to be everything else that people project onto me, whatever that is, people say all sorts of lovely words about me and it's it's all lovely and wonderful and I like to believe all of it. <clears throat> but, you know, the biggest thing is that I just, I just want to be myself, which is, you know, another one of those phrases, which what the fuck does that mean? But we know what that means. I just want to be myself. I just don't want to, I don't want to have to live up to expectations. I don't want to have to jump through any more hoops. 
And so I, you know, I think about these people and what they're going to expect of me and everything. And then I think, okay, well, hold on a second. I was thinking this morning. So maybe it has nothing to do with these people. I mean, who the fuck are these people in the first place um, that you're assuming have some sort of expectation about you? And even if they do, I mean, really, who fucking cares? So really, this is about claiming and reclaiming my own expectation of myself. I'm the one who feels like I have to go out and represent something that I'm not. I'm the one that thinks I have to be out shinier than I actually am or wittier than I actually am or wiser. Um, I'm the one who thinks like I don't get to just go and be my half formed, you know, sometimes broken, sometimes brilliant, self. I mean, that's who we all are. We're all sometimes broken, sometimes brilliant. And and we probably are those things actually at the same time, because our brilliance usually does come from our acceptance of our brokenness. So I, I, I really see that I'm the one who's doing this mind fuck to myself, of course, right? I mean, so easy when we see it from the outside. But I mean, I'm the one responsible for the dread. And the one that's responsible for these impossible standards and expectations that I feel that other people are going to be putting on me. So I'm, I'm going to do my best to, to kind of unpack this a little bit for myself and to really figure out um, what it would be, what it would mean to not feel that obligation to, to really let myself off the hook. There's no obligation to be anything in particular. Uh, if people are paying me to do something and I'm, I'm showing up, there's an obligation for me to be professional, to have done my homework, to, to come prepared, uh, that I get. But as far as the rest of it, who I am and uh, how I comport myself, uh, there's no obligation. Uh, you know, it's not like I'm some sort of horrible, <laughs> cunty person who demands things from people. I mean, you know, I, I'm pretty laid back. But uh, yeah, so I, I just see yeah, I just had this big epiphany this morning about really, whenever I start to think about, you know, oh, and here's, so here's the other thing. So this is what happened. I started really thinking about the difference between seeing ourselves as objects versus seeing ourselves subjectively. So when I'm feeling the dread, I'm, I'm kind of standing outside of myself and, and imagining myself being at this place that I need to go and having to be around certain people. And I'm having some idea about who these people are, even though I haven't met them yet. And I'm watching a movie in my head and I've made myself into an object. I've stepped outside of my inner life and my inner experience and I'm kind of watching this show. And from that, I'm deciding who I'm supposed to be and what I'm supposed to look like and and what my facial expressions should be and how lovely I should be and all of that. Um, but it's this, it's this show. I've, I've made myself into an object. I have, I have objectified myself as opposed to just letting myself have my subjective experience of life, which 
puts me in the moment, in my body right now, in my in myself, in this moment, in the place that I'm at. And realizing that just all that life is, is just a little, a little moment of this subjective experience over and over again. And that's all we really, really get to be in control of is, is the here and the now in this moment. And no matter how much I project ahead a day or two or five months or whatever it is into the future, um, it's just a fantasy picture in my head. Um, and so it's like the invitation is, is what is it, what is it like to make yourself the subject of your life? And, and strangely enough, that when you do that, the, the fear that, you know, your super ego has is, you know, you'll become narcissistic and self-absorbed and self-centered. But, but I really believe that the opposite happens because if you really allow yourself to be the subject of your life, then every relationship you have with everything around you is a pure encounter and an exchange on a deep level that everything becomes a sacred moment for you. And when everything becomes a sacred moment for me, what happens is I'm deeply connected to everything. I am not the center. I am not the narcissist. I am not the self-absorbed. I am actually just one thing of the multiple. And yet it's by fully identifying with my subjectivity that I get that experience. I mean, I really believe that's the essence of, you know, an encounter with the sacred or the numinous or the divine or whatever you want to call it is when you can really, I mean, that's why you do sitting meditation. It's so you can shut off your thinking mind, the mind that wants to objectify everything and just be, be in this body and this moment to connect with what is, which is everything. Yeah. So here I am. This is my uh, ramble for the week. (laughs) It's what I'm thinking of. It's what I'm wrestling with. Wrestling always with something. But really excited to be getting to wrestle with big things in my mind and just kind of turn this stuff all over and think about it and <clears throat> and be connected to what I feel is important. So here we are this uh, January 12th, 2016, with the world on the edge of so much, so much strangeness. I won't even bring it all up. I'm not even going to bring any names up or anything because I just, I don't want to take us out of this space and have to reconnect us momentarily for the insanity that's going on out there. But I was thinking about this yesterday, like for all the insanity that's going on, you know, there's a lot of amazing things going on in the world too. There's a lot of loving gestures and uh, 
compassion and people giving of themselves and their time. Uh, there's amazing strides in solving all sorts of problems in the world on small levels, on big levels. And there are some big things that are also going on. And I was really wondering, like, <clears throat> it may feel like there's like 80% bad shit and 20% good shit, but I don't think so. I think it's got to be around 50-50 all the time. <laughs> I think that's the only way the world can work. You know, I mean, if you think about the tension of the opposites, if you think about what makes the world go round, there's this kind of this equal push and pulling all the time. Forward, back, up, down, left, right. It's 50-50. And yeah, maybe it moves a little bit, but I don't think it moves that much. I don't know. I don't know. There's no way to measure this. So, I mean, you know, if we just pay attention to the media and social media and the gossip, then it is. It feels like 80 bad, 20 good. But when you talk to people and you find out about people volunteering and people creating organizations and people raising money for their neighbor that just got cancer and and people rescuing a dog off the side of the freeway. And I mean, just so there are billions, billions of generous acts of kindness going on right now on this planet, right now that we will never, ever know about. I'm guessing it has to equal the really, 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 really crazy shit that the news focuses on all day. So I'm, I'm going to stick with that. I'm going to stick with the 50-50 theory. I'm not going to believe that the world is completely going to shit. Because it isn't. It, it isn't. So, and I think if I stick with the 50-50 theory, um, there's more reason to, it feels more compelling to engage with the, in the world in a positive way. Uh, because if it's 80-20, you start to feel like, really, what's the fucking point? You know, are we all just masturbating here and just, you know, until the fucking clock ticks down? And we may be. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that one. But I'm going with the 50-50 theory now. It just, uh, no one can prove me wrong. So fuck it. <laughs> All right, so a couple of things. Um, if you're listening to this uh, on its first playing or before the weekend, I'll be in. I'm being going to be in Texas this weekend for something called the Pulpwood Queens Girlfriends Weekend. It's a big book author event. Um, I'm going to Natchitoches, Texas. I believe I've said that right. I will be schooled if I have not. Um, and there's going to be a bunch of authors and a bunch of people and there's some dress up costume balls. And I had a lot of dread around all of this, but I've got my costumes and I'm going to be doing a little piece, um, this piece called Altered States that I've written and gotten to do a couple of places. It's my new favorite piece. And, uh, so that'll be fun. And I get to hang out with a good friend of mine for the weekend. 
So I'm trying to let go of my dread about having to get on an airplane tomorrow and fly to Texas. I mean, you know, it is Texas. <laughs> and I, mil- I may shock a few good, nice ladies there this weekend when I use the word fuck. But hey, I, I'll make it up in some way, I'm sure. <clears throat> Uh, so yeah, so I'll be in Texas this weekend and, uh, just some other things. So, you know, I will be in Boston. I'm just going to get my calendar up here. People don't, don't mind me while I just, uh, scroll through my calendar here. Uh, so I'm going to be in LA at something called the Luncheon Society on January 19th. I'm going to be taping a bunch of interviews for my Sirius XM show this month, one with Jimmy Pardo, one with Tom Green, um, it looks like I've possibly booked Eliza Schlesinger, uh, Ray Romano will be coming up this spring. So that's all cool. And then I'll be in Boston. I'll be doing a little speech thing at this thing called the ad club in Boston. And I'm hoping to add a bookstore event for that too. And that's around, um, March 1st. <clears throat> but the big news is, which I'm not prepared for at all, and I do have a little bit of dread, <clears throat> is that I'm going to be at the Kravitz Center in West Palm Beach, Florida, with my solo show, A Carlin Home Companion, uh, May 29th through April 2nd, I believe it is. It's four shows over three nights, over three days. I've never done four shows in three days. That'll be interesting in itself. And I haven't done my shows since I did it last summer in Jamestown for the Lucy Fest and all of that. But that is um, happening. So if you're in Florida, this most likely is going to be my only Florida visit with my show. So come see me. Come buy tickets. Uh, It's in West Palm Beach. A lovely little town, I've heard. And hey, it'll be warm because it's Florida. So come see me. And uh, so that's some of my events I'm doing. And I will be back here next week uh, with the podcast. But before I go, I I would just want to honor a friend who uh, died uh, uh, a year ago, a few days ago was the anniversary. And partly I want to honor him because he's still such a potent figure inside of me and Logan is here today and Logan and I met because of this person Taylor Negron and there's I mean truly you know we see you hear people say oh he was one of a kind I really have to say this person I think it is the definition of one of a kind just so had his own ability to just be himself in every situation. And I'm sure he had the same voices in his head that all the rest of us do. But he showed up in such a way all the time that thoroughly inspired me to show up for myself in that same way, to fully own my language. He was a beautiful, beautiful writer and storyteller, an amazing actor, an incredible painter. And, um, And earlier this year, when I was in New York, and I did this House of Speakeasy event, and I the the topic was altered states. And 
I wrote this piece, which takes some of my show, uh, stories from my show, but I put it in a whole new context around altered states. And when I wrote it, I felt like I was in the magical space where Taylor would inspire me to go with ideas and the the poetry of ideas and the ability to tr- to to take an audience to transport an audience uh, to a place that they'd never been before with humor and depth and pathos and and all of that so I wanted to honor Taylor and his the one year anniversary of his passing uh, by letting you hear a little piece of his work. Here comes Logan. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Logan's got a cold. I do. I've got my best radio voice. I just want to take a moment to thank you and Taylor. I, it, I'm just truly thankful for him yeah. in every way. The lessons he taught me will continue to show up in surprising ways. And uh, he truly was the point that changed the trajectory of my life. Mm. Like, I'm working with you because of him. Every Everything I'm doing now is because I met him. So yeah. thank you. Yeah, and the, uh, the tale of Logan and I meeting is at the end of my book, uh, which is a really uh, a blatant plug for you to have to go buy my book right now. <laughs> <laughs> you must. <laughs> because I wouldn't do it justice telling you the story here. So um, we're going to play uh, a clip of Taylor's, and I know you will enjoy it. And uh, you guys have a great week, and I hope you enjoyed the podcast. And uh, we will uh, we'll talk soon. Have a good one. I was born in Los Angeles in a house in a canyon that was in a nest of palm trees that casted these thin, unmoving shadows like prison bars. It was very California Gothic. (laughs) I I'm very California Gothic. I am the child of those people that you used to see in the ads for cigarettes in the back of Life magazine. (laughs) Those handsome people that were always wearing terry cloth robes and, and penny loafers, smoking cigarettes, looking like they just heard the funniest joke of their life. The Marlboro man met the Virginia Slims woman and had me. (laughs) It's very California Gothic to have your best friend's mother, who is a movie star, keep her cracked Oscar in the kitchen next to the salt and the cumin and the cumadin. It's very California Gothic to see Joan Didion crying at the wheel of her green jaguar on Moore Park below Ventura. It's very California Gothic to have a cousin who is a rock star. 
My cousin is Chuck Negron, the lead singer for the group Three Dog Night. And he bore a startling resemblance to Charles Manson. Now, when you were a kid like me in 1970, growing up in Los Angeles, you knew that you, cha- that you shared the city with Charles Manson and his family. Because that grisly, murderous night of mayhem and helter-skelter was all anybody could talk about. And for those of you who are too young to know what helter-skelter is... It's um, kind of like twerking, but with blood. And (laughs) it was really scary. Really horrifying. And... And my parents, they were always going out on the town. They were always getting dressed up and leaving like in Mad Men, right? They just left me alone. They just went out. One night, my father came in and he said... "Um, I want you to close all these doors and windows. I don't want these hippies to come in here and de-gut you. (laughs) You heard him. That was an option in my childhood, to be de-gutted. And it left a tremendous psychic scar on my life that has stayed with me forever. And, I, and I'm still very disturbed by, by, by hippies and long hairs and, and headbands and large candles and beads and bandanas. I just don't like any of it. But um, I was only 12 years old. I, 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 was, I, was a, I was a tween. I was a changeling. I was changing into a man. But childhood is a, is a place where your fears are disproportionate. They're huge. But then so are your goals. And, and that's where the magic can happen, in these goals. And my goal when I was a child was to own a gorilla. Um, <laughs> Or, uh, you know, a monkey or an ape. Anything from the monkey-ape-gorilla family. I just wanted someone to, uh, you know, be able to play hide-and-go-seek with, um, swim, uh, shoot dice, um, light ironing. And uh, my parents were these really emphatic kind of ghetto people from New York City, right, who didn't like animals at all. And my mother said, look, you will never, ever see a monkey walk through that door. (laughs) But something very magical happened (laughs) that Christmas of 1970. You see, my uncle Ishmael, that was his real name, Ishmael, he was a trucker, and he had... He had his own flatbed truck, which meant that he could follow other people around who had flatbed trucks and pick up what fell off of theirs. (laughs) And one day he was closing down this raggedy-ass Circus Vargas in the Hollywood Bowl parking lot on Highland, and he came across a monkey that somebody was throwing out. (laughs) 
a live monkey named Carol. Two R's, two L's. And we knew it was called Carol because it had its own cage with its name on it. And that is what changed the deal with my parents because they are emphatic New Yorkers. So they said, well, if it's, if it's free <laughs> and it comes with a cage, what harm can it do? Well, Carol came to the house. I was so excited. Carol arrived on that flatbed truck on a pile of grapefruits in his cage. And when I went out there and greeted him, and I looked into those big round eyes, I knew that, that I would understand everything that monkey had to say to me. And that I would ir- experience unconditional love. Well, the monkey promptly squatted, shat into its hand and then threw it into my eye underpaw. And from the shadow, I heard the ice clink in my mom's drink. And she said, that's your monkey. I loved my monkey so much and I stuck with my monkey while everybody turned against my monkey. Sometimes they even put a sheet over its cage. I stuck with my monkey when my monkey willfully and intentionally fucked my grandmother's mink hat and I took the blame. Carol was my most cherished early Christmas present. But Carol was not the only unexpected visitor that season. One Christmas night, the Santa Ana winds blew too hard against the glass in cold, frightening Los Angeles. I had fallen asleep into a deep Christmas sleep, and I looked out the window and I saw a van pull up in front of the house, turn off, and just stop. Nothing happened for 30 minutes. Nothing happened. And I thought to myself, this is it. This is my nightmare. It's going to come true. And I thought to myself, well, at least I made it to 12. Then I looked out, and and, and the door opened up, and then finally this plume of smoke rolled out, and these hippies came out on wobbly feet and started slinking up to the front of the house. And as the cast of Woodstock approached, I I felt vulnerable in my my Charlie Brown sleeping T-shirt. And I waited for the physical and emotional attack to begin. There was a knock on the door. And I heard my mother's voice muffled. I I knew she was dead, throats cut. I I had read the papers. But then I, I heard her say, grilled cheese sandwiches for everyone. 
Why was my mother giving protein to a serial killer? And then there was a, a blast as my father came into my room and he said, Your cousin Chuck is here. Come down. And I timidly followed my father down the stairs to see in the living room what appeared to be Mama Cass Elliot, Jim Morrison, and assorted long hairs devouring Christmas cookies. My cousin stood shyly holding a Three Dog Night album at the stereo, and he told us he was going to play a song for us that no one had ever heard before. Side one, song A. <laughs> Jeremiah was a bullfrog, was a good friend of mine. I never understood a single word he said, but I helped him a drink of his wine. And on that cold, windy night, everyone stood up and started to dance. My, my, my father grabbed my mother and they started to dance. I looked over and Jim Morrison, the Jim Morrison, was dancing the jitterbug with my grandmother on the coffee table. It was so extraordinary. It was so magnificent. The hippies and the long hairs were all singing along to choruses of joy to the world. All the boys and girls now. And then the song was over and someone picked up the needle and put it back at the beginning. And the song continued and the dancing continued. And there's something emblematic about certain California Christmas memories. And, and, and here is one that is transcendent, rock and roll. And this is what made my monkey legendary. <laughs> he came down, <laughs> hurtling down the stairs and went right up to the stereo and started dancing. Had we forgotten? Carol was a circus monkey. And this was her cue. You know I love the ladies. Her arms, his arms outstretched like rubber bands, and he, he started picking off the ornaments from the Christmas tree. Love to have my fun. The monkey started to juggle. I'm a high night rider and a rainbow flyer, a straight shooting son of a gun. I said, a straight shoot. I wish you were all there to have seen the expression on those stoned. <laughs> on it, we found out later, LSD. Hippies. And my grandmother, my grandmother as Carol, my monkey, rightfully claim the spotlight. <laughs> glee is a very good word to use because that's what it was. Pure happiness and glee because I was 12 years old and I was alive. <laughs> and I had escaped Manson's knife. <laughs> and I had a monkey with talent. And as everybody danced, and as everybody laughed, and as everybody ate cookies, I looked at my family, I looked at these people, and 
all of their crimes, past, present, and future, seem to just spill out and dissolve into the contours of the blue shag rug. (laughs) And as Carol balanced an ashtray on his nose, it was as though I was looking into my future because I realized all the glorious things that could happen with music and with joy. And that Christmas, the last one that I was ever a child, I learned a very important lesson that I'd like to pass on to you all tonight. And that's that no matter how horrible your day is, and no matter how scary your night is, everything can turn on a dime and with a knock on the door. Thank you. This has been a production of Smodco Internet Radio. Sir, only at Smodcast.com.